Welcome to another episode of Conic Detrimental. Dan Wallach and Dan Lust. Dan, good to see you in person. We got to see each other at the live reunion. Dan, have you recovered from your night of drinking on Friday? No, I had to recover from my night of drinking on Thursday. You know, <laughs> I, I, I scoped out this bar a day ahead of time to make sure that we were all set up the right way. And I'm glad that I went because I, I was able to get us the right side or the left side of the room, which was the optimal room. But I made the mistake of enjoying my bloody Caesars a little bit too much. I had two of them. That's probably more alcohol that I've consumed in, in don't tell my Russian relatives this, but you know, because it's they a don't drinking listen. culture, it's a drinking culture. But I think uh, I had one bloody Caesar too much. But what's up with you not recognizing me when I walked into the bar? I walked into okay. the bar Friday night, okay. you're wearing your Adam Graves jersey, and I call out, hey, Adam. And you look around at, at, at me and you turn around, I have absolutely no idea who I am. False. False. Let's set the stage a little bit, Dan. If we're, if we're gonna, we're gonna call it out, Dan. We we said let's come to the bar early. So I'm literally the only person in the entire bar. I hear someone yell out, "Adam, my name is not Adam. I am wearing my Adam Graves number nine Rangers Stanley Cup jersey." You have to I go into respond. character. You have to go into character. Uh, since since when? It's not Halloween. It was a <laughs> random day in May. So mm-hmm. I didn't respond. And then Dan, I turned around and it was obviously you. And you're like, why didn't you respond to Adam? I'm like, uh, I'm not sure. Because, you seem, Dan, but you seem confused when you saw I, me. I well, I, I when someone is calling a name that is not mine and yelling it in the back of my head, yes, I am a little confused. But then I saw you and all all was good. So Dan, you know, it was great to see you. You and I, we did the math. We had not seen each other. As crazy as this is going to sound, you and I speak, you know, multiple times a week. We're on the podcast once a week together. You and I have only seen each other in person twice. So the first was in 2015, right around there, and the second was this past week. So pretty wild that we've only seen each other in person twice. So that puts us on target for 2029 for the next time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, here's the thing. We'll jump ahead. The event uh, was, we talked about this in a little bit in the last episode. We had Landis on, but the event was a huge success. Uh, Our friends at Themis uh, loved it. A lot of you responded. Uh, We heard you uh, pretty loud and clear. Our Chicago audience, our Florida audience, and our California audience. We didn't hear that much in St. Louis that you guys want an event there, but I'm, I'm sure now you will. But we'll be we'll be doing this again in a matter matter of where, yeah. not when. We will. Yeah, we got to give a, a shout out to the Canuck Bar. I think it's on Ninth Avenue between 22nd and 23rd. It's a sports. It's a Canadian themed, hockey themed sports bar in the middle of Chelsea, and you couldn't pick a more perfect location to hold our event, particularly since it was coinciding with game six of the New York Rangers at Pittsburgh. And, and that was the critical game in the series. I mean, game seven was the ultimate game, but the Rangers pulled it out and we were there to enjoy, have our party and to basically watch the Ranger game. And we were surrounded and we were Ranger fans ourselves, but we were surrounded by, you know, just dozens of Rangers fans, you know, chanting, let's go Rangers. What a, what a scene it was. And you couldn't pick a more perfect night to have our first party. Yeah, it was a magical night. The Rangers were down, they came back, and they ended up winning in Game 7. We're obviously, you know, Dan, you and I are from New York here. I will say, as much as you were hungover, I was hungover. I'm the father of two. I don't get to go out that much, on, uh, especially on Friday nights. I did not get back. We'll say I got back very late in the early morning hours of, the, of Saturday. And then, Dan, I woke up, and we had to go to the zoo. So Saturday was very eventful. But neither here nor there, Dan. We got a busy, busy slate of sports law to get into. You and I have not joined forces on the pod. We had recorded an episode on sports betting, but the the audio got cut off. So Dan, uh, I'll give it back to you before we get into the roadmap for today. Yeah, I want to ask you, you know, I I think in the Rangers-Pittsburgh series, goaltending made all the difference. But, you know, something that's been bothering me about this sort of injury reporting with Sidney Crosby, 
You know, you know, in the NBA, you know, with, with legal sports betting becoming so expansive throughout the country, the NBA has sort of fine-tuned its injury reporting. The NFL has their weekly injury reports where there has to be some amount of transparency. But with the NHL, there's absolutely nothing. We knew Sidney Crosby had a head injury from, from game five on Wednesday. There was just absolutely no transparency around his availability for game six. And most importantly, for game seven, we didn't know until five minutes before the warm-ups that he was even going to be playing in game seven. And that can kind of wreck havoc with the sports betting markets. How would you like to be a sports bookmaker trying to set odds and lines on this game, not knowing whether Crosby would play? And how could you bet on a game like this without having some inkling that Crosby may or may not be available? And it opens up the Pandora's box of, you know, who has inside information, who really knows about his availability, I would imagine that there were hundreds of people who knew that Sidney Crosby was playing. I mean, if he'd been on the Penguins, he probably would have lost anyway. But what do you think about this notion of the NHL being uh, sort of behind the times in injury reporting? Should there be more transparency or is there a risk of injury to the players from having too much transparency? I told you this offline. I don't think this issue is immune to the NHL. It's certainly become more of an issue in the world of legalized sports betting. The 76ers in Philadelphia over in the NBA, obviously, that's since been actually similarly to the Pittsburgh Penguins eliminated from competition. But they were fined, Sixers were fined $50,000 for violating the NBA's injury reporting rules. And that was with respect to uh, their MVP finalist, Joel Embiid, miraculously hearing from concussion protocol and a fractured orbital socket. And he's like, OK, he's playing in game three. And I know because I took advantage of it. I made a couple shekels off it. But I took advantage of that betting line. You see the news on Twitter quicker than the books can react. And that's why these teams are getting fined, because the leagues are, are partners in, in more often than not with these sports betting entities. And they can't really afford to have teams violating protocol and then the house losing all this money by having an inaccurate line. And people like me jumping on the Twitter news quicker than the books can react. And, it, you know, it helps, you know, betters, but it's certainly not helping the books. And that's why laws are in place or we'll say mm-hmm. rules are in place to try to prevent those type of injury, late scratches and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Is fifty thousand dollars though enough of a disincentive? I mean, because it, you know, when you when you when the dust settles, all the 76ers care about is their own competitive advantage vis-a-vis the playoff game. And the P- Pittsburgh Penguins are going to do everything possible to protect Sidney Crosby. And by revealing only this amorphous upper body injury, when everybody knows he probably had a concussion, the thinking behind that is, well, we don't want him targeted by other players. And the NHL is unique among the leagues in that the transparency around player injuries is going to make those players susceptible to sort of extra attention by the opponents during the game. You don't really see that to the same extent in the NBA because fouls are going to be called and you could foul out. Or in the NFL, where the league takes concussions a lot more seriously. In the NHL, any one of 20 players or 19 players, excluding the goalie, could take a run at a player. So you can basically take your fourth line player and make him a sacrificial lamb to pay to, you know, try to take out a Sidney Crosby. So I understand why the teams are going to go to the nth degree to protect the player, regardless of what league report injury reporting requirements are. So I think this exposes a real, you know, sort of problem in the betting markets. And as the NHL begins to profit from its betting partnerships with the various companies that they're in the dark ages when it comes to injury reporting. Agreed, and uh, obviously it's still still relatively new, uh, new territory, so I imagine those fines will get heightened. But uh, for casual bettors like myself, I do not mind that late injury yeah. swinging news. Uh, we saw it again last night, Dan, game one I, of the I, Celtics. I, what kind of, well, you're gonna I, like this one. Celtics and the Heat, Al Horford declared out late with the COVID scratch. And uh, again, that's gonna move the line, it's gonna move all the props. So I am not opposed to it. I'm just saying yeah. uh, teams gotta be better. 
Here's what I recommend. I think the the teams are going to always act in self-interest, maybe to the detriment of the player. I think when there are head injuries involved in the National Hockey League, particularly when you have a player who's already suffered concussions, missed almost a full year with with, with a head injury, that I think that the league should be involved and, and the player should be cleared by a league doctor which has no skin in the game rather than a team doctor. And, you know, obviously a team and the fan base is going to be motivated to try. I know they want to protect the player to a degree, but in a game seven, there may be some sort of divided, you know, loyalties here and acting out of self-interest. And I believe the league should try to play a more active role in clearing a player, particularly uh, given uh, you know, the, these circumstances. So we snuck in a topic that's the sports betting compliance with injury reporting protocol. We'll call that topic number one. Now, Dan, very, very busy slate for the rest of the episode, and we'll try to be uh, try to dedicate the appropriate amount of time to each topic. But ready for this roadmap, Dan? St. Louis Rams. The lawsuit is back. There was a lawsuit filed by, or let's say a motion by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch to try to get the documents. Mysteriously, they withdrew that motion, and now we know why a number of documents released uh, so we have a you know a good amount of more information on what happened with respect yeah. to the city of St. Louis. We have some of our followers pointing out that Dan, you were probably right all along that there was some potentially some expansion negotiation that should have occurred, but we'll leave that there. Moving on, we have Jerry Judy as a wide receiver for the Denver Broncos, charged with criminal tampering in the second degree. We had a lot of people ask us to cover it, so we certainly will. Josh Lambeau, former kicker for the Jacksonville Jaguars, files a lawsuit against against the Jacksonville Jaguars for hostile work environment. Why? We covered the story once upon a time. Yes, the kicker is alleging that he was kicked by the head coach, former head coach Urban Meyer. So we're going to talk about that. John Gruden, we have a hearing coming up. That's the uh, arbitrability of the case. NFL is moving to dismiss the case and or move the case to arbitration. Dan, I know you've done a lot of digging there. We had an update on the Watson front. Again, as we predicted, some more leaked deposition testimony. Shocker. Shocker, right? And then I think we're getting pretty close to a suspension on the Watson front. And last but not least, two baseball stories. Matt Harvey suspended by Major League Baseball for 60 games for his testimony in the Eric K case, which we spent a lot of time on. And of all people, Trevor Bauer has shouted out and said, hey, I get 60 games for distributing drugs to someone and I get a two-year suspension. That doesn't quite make sense. We will talk about it all. Okay, Dan. Should we we just do a Trevor Bauer segment every episode? Probably going to have to. But let's start, Dan, on the gridiron. We have a lot of topics. We've got to be uh, kind to our producer, Mike, who, as always, we don't chat him out enough, does an excellent job going through this stuff and making us sound smart at the end of the day. So, Dan, the floor is yours. A pretty, I don't, know, I don't want to you know bury this, but a, I take a very big development with respect to transparency in the St. Louis Rams lawsuit. So if you are a fan of Conduct Detrimental, you know we spent weeks, if not months, talking about this case, the lead up to the case, trial of the case. We brought in a lot of new listeners for this particular topic, and we thank you for staying on. Dan, the floor is yours. What is the update in the St. Louis Rams lawsuit? Well, I mean, hundreds of pages of, of newly unsealed documents get released. I mean, if you were following the case as we were, almost the entirety of the docket, you know, all the motions, depositions, exhibits, all of them are, were sealed. I mean, there was no visibility around it. Like the 90% of, of the of the content was, was sort of behind a paywall, so to speak. And the St. Louis Post-Dispatch filed a motion to unseal, uh, arguing that these are public records. And, you know, they, they withdrew their motion probably on consent with the National Football League and the St. Louis and the Cronky Ownership Group. And what we discovered from the release of these documents really confirms everything we believed all along that, you know, not only, you know, not only was Cronky lying between 10, 2010 and 2016, but the National Football League was also in on the lie and they were well aware of 
the connection between the 2013 California land purchase and its use as a future stadium for the National Football League. The NFL and Roger Goodell were intimately involved in the discussions on how to message that back in 2013. But for me, the biggest revelation was the plan to potentially relocate the Oakland Raiders to St. Louis. And that disclosure underscores, really bolsters the viability of the St. Louis market as an NFL franchise. I mean, one of the bases under which the Rams were able to relocate was the fiction that St. Louis wouldn't be able to support an NFL market. And here we're learning that the NFL was considering placing the Raiders in St. Louis. So shocker, uh, shocker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, really, when you add all this stuff up, I mean, there was a strong case to begin with. But how can you conclude that the NFL did anything but deceive the city and not follow its own relocation guidelines if the absence of fan support and the lack of a viable market is the sine qua non of relocating? Then why are you proposing moving the Raiders to the city you eventually departed from? I mean, it's really inconsistent and you can't harmonize the two things. And the question is given that there's all this secrecy and lying going on, it raises the specter of maybe St. Louis had a much better case than you and I even realized at the time, because this adds the prospect of punitive damages, because you don't need reprehensible conduct, but you need a reckless disregard for the rights of, of the plaintiff. And that, that was the law for punitive damages in St. Louis, which governs this situation. And how are they not getting punitive damages? So whether there's a contract or the relocation policy contract, or just based on the fraud, the specter of punitive damages would have multiplied the damage award into the billions under any kind of theory, whether it was contractual or just on a fraud slash tortious interference theory. And I'm wondering, under those circumstances, why did St. Louis walk away for $790 million when they had a tiger by the tail? Let's just, uh, for those that don't know the whole history, you know, Dan, you and I were going over this scenario. If you want a billion dollars, right? Why not float out this concept? Hey, listen, we we have you. Maybe you can give us an expansion team at this point. So then there was some reporting. I mean, we we talked it out. It would just just made sense to us that that would be what was occurring. There were some people, not you and I, that were reporting on it directly. That there were some. I think the NFL was considering these proposals. And then after the settlement occurred, different people were disagreeing with the initial reporting and saying actually expansion never came up in any of the conversation. So someone was wrong. We weren't really quite sure who, but I think you, and I certainly give you the credit. You said it just didn't make sense. You know, if St. Louis didn't bring it up, city of St. Louis lawyers, that would be akin to, you know, bad lawyering. Why wouldn't you bring it up? So what we've seen here, right? I don't know, Dan, you and I were not in the room. We don't know what got brought up, what did not get brought up, but now it seems pretty clear that the NFL might have been willing to consider that type of scenario. If they were thinking of moving the Raiders to St. Louis, I don't know, that's that's not so far away from having an expansion team in the city of St. Louis. So I think if if the lawyers didn't bring it up, I'm not sure whose reporting is right, and we're not going to call anyone no. out by name, but maybe they should have brought it up. I think I think that's the point here. And I, I want to give you your, your roses, your flowers. I think you were 100% on this issue the entire time. Look, it's kind of obvious. You don't need to have sources or, or someone going on the record or off the record saying, yeah, we would have floated this possibility if it was requested. It just seems fairly obvious that when you compute the damages in this case, assuming that there's liability, and a St. Louis jury probably would have entered a verdict in favor of the county, city, and the stadium authority, you're looking at a damage award that probably would have been upheld on appeal because at this point, once you get past, once you get through a jury verdict where there are factual issues, 
those stand a very good chance of being upheld on appeal. And regardless of whether the, the, the relocation fee or the increase in value of the franchise from moving to LA would have been upheld on appeal, certainly the lost revenues, tax revenue, you know, surrounding direct and indirect revenue from having a team over a period of 10 to 20 years. I mean, that, that's a number that easily would get up into the mid nine figures. And then when you, when you add in the punitive damages multiplier, you easily get to a, uh, a multi-billion dollar verdict, regardless of whether, of whether the relocation policy is deemed a contract or not. And maybe that's arguable or debatable, but the point is this was a clear case where punitive damages could have been reasonably assessed and upheld on appeal. And I'm wondering you know, why, why the city, why the region, why the county opted to settle out so quickly before trial when they had, the, they didn't even have, they had met, they had a lot of leverage, but they were only going to gain leverage as it got closer to trial. And you can't tell me that you're holding a $5 billion damage award and the league isn't going to float the possibility of non-monetary compensation to reduce that number somewhat. And, and clearly a team would have been the easy way out for the league. And, and, and some skeptics are going to say, well, who's going to come in and build? How, how is a stadium going to be financed? Well, I can give you some precedent about that. When the NFL settled with the city of Cleveland in 1998 and promised a new franchise, construction costs towards a new stadium were partially funded by the NFL as part of that settlement. And I know there are people within St. Louis that have their sources that say the league never would have granted a, an expansion franchise. I believe that their source did in fact probably tell them that, but I believe the other sources and the economic reality of the situation involving a multi-billion dollar judgment and the argument behind closed doors as to who's going to fund that award. You had this indemnity battle that's still playing out between Stan Kroenke and the other 31 owners and exposing that kind of fissure within the room and this kind of dissension and disagreement. Nobody wanted to foot that bill. And I think this all pointed towards a compromise in which a team could have been awarded to the city of St. Louis. And by not asking for it, by not demanding it, by not taking it to trial, I think it's it's now uh, going to be decades. It may never result in a scenario where the city gets a team again. This The moment was now, and it becomes a question of what do you really want? What are you fighting for? Are you fighting for just money damages? Or do you want the or do you want the wrong to be reversed? If I'm you know sitting in the position of St. Louis, and I've been defrauded and taken advantage of by the National Football League, lied to by the league and by Stanley Kroenke. I want my pound of flesh. I want justice. And justice to me is restoring the city and county to the position it would have been in had it not been lied to. I mean, it's, it's, it's common sense to me. And the exorbitant and outsized damage award, which wouldn't have been outsized relative to the harm caused, being able to take this to trial and place the league under the duress of cross-examination in a public trial with that type of exposure, staring it down, I think would have been enough of an incentive for the league to bail out and award a new expansion franchise, you know, subject to the satisfaction of certain conditions, finding a local owner, blah, blah, blah. But with that kind of money at stake, there was enough to offer a franchise, waive the relocation fee, and partially fund some of the stadium costs. They've done it before. They did it with Cleveland. Why couldn't they do it with St. Louis? I don't disagree. I mean, we certainly have to hit it. And I did not I did make note of it. It looked like the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, some of our friends over there, 
We're trying to get those documents, and then those documents ended up coming out. I know one of our writers, Alec Patterson, law student over at Cooley, has been spending a lot of time with us. I think we're going to expect an article, certainly from him, on that front. Okay, Dan, I, I think we can move on. I mean, uh, we'll see what comes of it. I know some of the national pundits have picked up that story, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't point this out. Dan and uh, kind of I hate the word, I hate the word pundit. We're pundits. It's fine. No, we're not pundits. We're, we're experts. We're, we're analysts. We're, we're journalists, writers, uh, hosts. I always hated the word pundit. There's a negative association or a negative connotation uh, for that. That just says somebody who flips a coin and makes a hot take. Uh, we're experts. I don't know. Pundit doesn't seem like such a bad word, but I will say, Dan. Would you rather be a pundit or an expert? Expert, pundit, they're both good. As long as you call me national, that sounds pretty good. And a little bit of, uh, I guess, poetic justice on the ice. Stan Kroenke, in addition to owning uh, the then St. Louis Rams, now Los Angeles Rams, in his sports portfolio, also owns the Colorado Avalanche, who happened to be going up in the NHL playoffs against the St. Louis Blues. So, Dan, I am certainly rooting for the St. Louis Blues in that series, and I imagine a lot of our listeners will be as well. Okay, so that'll take us. Yeah, yeah it's w- worth monitoring. Oh, what um, a tangled web we weave. Very true. Let us move over uh, to another story on the gridiron. Jerry Judy, star wide receiver for the Broncos, had a uh, big injury last year, so missed some time, but getting ready for a new season with Russell Wilson. And then kind of a panic day on on Thursday. I got a lot of DMs from people in the Denver area trying to figure out what was going on. He gets arrested, Dan, for criminal tampering in the second degree. The tweet was funny. It said a domestic enhancer. So I'm like, that's interesting. So I started doing my research, looking up what in Colorado, what criminal tampering is. So I looked up criminal tampering in the first degree. I want to see what the most serious charge was. And it's talking about like disconnecting a utility service of some sort, like electric, water, and gas. And I'm like, that's bizarre. So, okay. And then number two, second degree, which is what he was charged with here, was kind of an annoyance and probably damage relating to some type of property. And it said domestic. So I'm like, yeah, I've seen a couple of these in my time. Probably a cell phone. There's probably something going on, taking something from someone else, but it's relatively minor. And Dan, wouldn't you know, that is uh, essentially what happened. It's uh, someone that Jerry Judy was in a relationship with, essentially called the police to say that um, you know Jerry Judy was taking her phone away or wallet away. And Medical records is mother, mother, mother of their uh, mother of the the mother of his child. And probably leave it a little vague, but go ahead. And, and uh, you know, he was preventing her from taking the child's medical records and, you know, other other documentation and other property. I think she wanted to you know, sort of leave and he was preventing that from happening. There was no violence involved, but it was still a, a domestic violence situation with tampering of, of records. It doesn't seem like it's really going to have a long shelf life because she doesn't want to press charges. And well, without her cooperation... I'm not sure what kind of criminal case there is. Right. And, uh, and I will say there was a lot of uh, attention. There was no bond set for him and people were having a panic attack. And I'm like, eh, everyone relax. There will be a bond set when a judge comes in. It's not that big of a deal. Bond well, he's, out. A, he, he's, you know, out. he's out. He's out. Yeah. yeah. yeah it, he appeared in court. He was granted a $1,500 personal recognizance bond. So he was you know, released later that day. Very small number. But again, this is why everyone's got to slow down a little bit. Everyone's like, it's not, there's criminal tampering in the second degree. There's no bond. They're keeping him and they're not letting him escape. Again, I'll just, I'll just say this, which I, I've said on other shows. When an athlete is charged with a crime, 
that's you and I are ears percolating for a potential suspension. Again, you don't need to actually be convicted of a crime or take a plea to a crime in order to have some type of suspension. I don't know, actually not, not predicting that one happens here, but you know, in the history and, and precedent set by uh, in, our, in our football spaces, once an actual crime is charged, more often than not, right, I would think that, you know, some that you're kind of leading towards potentially some on-field suspension. But if you just read the facts of this particular case, you know, I'm not sure we've necessarily crossed line. I'm, I might be wrong. There might oh. be a suspension here, but I'm, I don't think I would be so confident in predicting that one will occur. I, I don't think the NFL is going to take any kind of domestic, potential domestic violence situation very lightly. They've devoted a lot of energy and devoted a lot of attention to, re, to reorienting their domestic violence policy and personal conduct policy. And while this didn't in back, in, involve an act of violence, it was an alleged crime the NFL will have to investigate, probably is already conducting, or at least trying to conduct a parallel investigation, but without, without the woman's cooperation, all the NFL is left with are police incident reports, but that may be enough. In the NFL's world, you don't need a preponderance of the evidence, clear and convincing evidence, or even proof beyond a reasonable doubt. You just need sufficient or, you know, just the, the lowest, I forget what the, what the exact word is, but it's like a scintilla of evidence. And I think a police incident report would standing by itself be enough to justify a suspension. But what kind of a suspension are we looking at here? There wasn't any violent act, so it probably wouldn't be six games. He may be looking at a very low level suspension, you know, one game, two games, three games, maybe a fine. But I don't think it's the end of the story because in Roger Goodell's NFL, they investigate everything and they take forever doing it in some instances. So I don't think he's completely out of the woods yet, but I would imagine at some point during the regular season, he's going to be catching passes from Russell Wilson and hopefully at least a touchdown pass from Russell Wilson, which is one more than he had all of last year. Agreed, Dan. So we'll leave that story there. You know, we, sh we should probably bring it up. Jerry, Judy, people were making the comparisons at the time, which I did not think were at all valid, but Jerry, Judy in legal trouble and Henry Ruggs in legal trouble and um, whoever would bring it up. I'd privately tell them like there is no comparison between these two cases. Henry Ruggs, which we covered once upon a time, the you know alleged uh, drunk driving incident resulted in the, the uh, you know the fatality of another person. That case is still moving on in the criminal courts, but just because people are involved with some type of arrest, uh, there's really no comparison between these two incidents. So if you're making that comparison, it's lazy. And uh, yeah, but, I just think it's totally uncalled for. I, honestly, yeah, I, people and, people were making it tongue in cheek. It's it's not funny at all. I mean, that was but, my opinion. But, but, you know, it compounds the difficulty of the NFL drafting process. You have all these front offices and scouts, you know, ranking players on their draft board. And, uh, you, know, you know, with so many prominent players, you know, early in the career getting into these off the field issues, it, it just adds another dimension to you know how you how you grade players and rank players and when, when teams like the giants are you know selecting players that necessarily aren't the best available player uh, they may be looking at factors other than you know just the you know players on the field ability and they may be picking players based upon their you know that uh, they were team captains and they, they can trust the player uh, to basically you know not have issues off the field so that's that's part of it that's unfortunately part of the new calculus for NFL general managers. Agreed, but I, I, I don't know, uh, the two, two very different incidents. But again, we'll continue to monitor the Judy case. Let's stay with another player, not quite a wide receiver and not necessarily someone that's in the same caliber, but that is Josh Lambeau, former Jacksonville Jaguars kicker. Again, I mentioned at the top, he made a lot of headlines last year when the Urban Meyer uh, doesn't know what he's doing express was going. Josh Lambeau was front and center and essentially saying, hey, when I was the kicker on the team, I wanted to have a relationship with Urban Meyer. 
And all of a sudden, uh, Urban Meyer came up to him uh, during warmups and kicked him in the leg. Uh, Urban Meyer basically said, I'm, I'll do whatever the F I want. I'm the head ball coach. So fast forward a couple months, uh, Josh Lambeau has now filed, filed a lawsuit because of how his, his handling as the Jacksonville Jaguars kicker. So he missed Lambeau at the time. You know, he was a pretty successful kicker for a number of years. He had played seven seasons in the NFL. And then he missed all three of his field goal attempts in four games before he was released in October. You know, the lawsuit claims hostile work environment. The lawsuit claims that, quote, his performance suffered as a result of being kicked, no pun intended, and verbally abused by Meyer last year. And also claims that Meyer and the Jaguars created a hostile work environment and the incident affected Lambeau's ability to sleep, practice, and perform his job. The lawsuit seeks $3.5 million in compensation. So, Dan, I think, the, and again, just for, for timing purposes, the kicking incident occurred while uh, Lambeau was stretching at practice for the team's final preseason game with the Dallas Cowboys. So kicker is alleging that he was kicked by the head coach. Jokes aside, if your boss or maybe your supervisor physically assaults you at work, I think that you would be, you know, no one is surprised if a lawsuit results. Dan, this lawsuit itself, a player suing a head coach relating to kind of on-field conduct. He's um, suing the you, team. He's suing the team. Su- suing the team. And obviously he's suing the team through the conduct of one of their employees, yeah. responding at superior, vicarious liability, whatever you want to call it. Dan, your thoughts on the uh, viability of this lawsuit? Okay. Well, c- certainly if we look at the cause and effect issue, this is this is a kicker. Who has a you know a track record? You can you know look up you can look up his statistics. He's kicked at a proficiency rate of making ninety percent or more of his field goals in prior seasons. And here he is after this alleged incident where he's kicked. He's zero for three, which is almost like inconceivable for a kicker of that renown. And then he's and then he's waived. So he's been damaged. He, you know the, the it, it doesn't take it's not going to take a jury to make a leap of faith to see a cause and effect between his treatment by Meyer and the damage suffered by him. But the larger question, and it's a question that's going to be presented in the Gruden litigation as well as in the Flores litigation, is this something that should be arbitrated? Can players start suing their teams in court over conduct related to their treatment as employees? There's a provision in the standard player contract, and I don't know whether whether or not it will apply here, but you know, in, in the portion of a standard player contract called disputes, it makes pretty clear that any disputes between the player and the club have to be submitted to binding arbitration in accordance with the uh, you know, NFL CBA. And then when you kick over to the NFL CBA, it has very troubling language for Josh Lambeau in that I think this would be treated as a non-injury grievance. Or maybe it would be an injury grievance. I don't know. But if it's a non-injury grievance, you know, hostile work environment, He's got to bring a claim like that within 50 days under the NFL collective bargaining agreement. And he's going to face a potential whipsaw argument that the NFL or the team, the Jaguars are going to argue in court in a motion to dismiss or a motion to compel arbitration that he should have brought this through arbitration under the process delineated in the NFL CBA. And oh, by the way, his claim is time barred because he didn't file his claim within 50 days as mandated by the collective bargaining agreement for non-injury grievances. Of course, if this is treated as an injury grievance, maybe that's governed by a different set of rules. So Lambeau could be in a very difficult situation here where he's forced to arbitrate a claim and he's time barred under that claim. So I think that's a potential argument that the Jaguars are going to raise. But what I find really interesting is about the timing of this lawsuit being brought almost coinciding with the Jaguars taking the position that Urban Meyer 
was fired for cause. And one of the grounds for the for cause firing was his treatment of Josh Lambeau during the preseason. So in a way, this lawsuit could help bolster the Jaguars' argument that he was fired for cause. Well, at the same time, this case could be kicked out of court based upon the arbitration language in the player contract Wait, and under did, the CBA. Did you say kicked out of court? <laughs> yeah, I got to keep. Was, I got to. I got to keep was, you on your toes. That, that was a good one. So, oh, Lam- keep you Lambeau, on your toes. Keep you on your toes. There we go. I've run out of puns for this, but 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 Josh Lambeau is in a very difficult situation, whereas he may not have a viable judicial remedy. And the time frame for bringing an arbitration claim may have passed. So that's an issue that's going to bear watching. But certainly this incident is going to be front and center in any ensuing arbitration or litigation over the remaining monies due to Urban Meyer and any separate dispute between Meyer and the Jaguars, because that's at the undercurrent of why he was terminated for cause, even though they waited you know, months after the incident before firing him. So I, I happen to know this particular issue well with a couple of cases I've, I've dealt with concerning the NFL without getting to too many details. You know, the, the CBA was adjusted to particularly not have cases like this litigated, you know, in the, in the public sphere. So that's why Gruden, which we're going to get to next, Gruden, I don't, uh, again, you can tell me if I'm wrong. I don't, I don't think the Gruden case is going to see a uh, courtroom after, after this. I think it's going to be moved to arbitration. I think a case like I'm Josh sure. Lambeau, I'm sorry. Is there no home cooking in Manhattan that you've well, ever heard of? Well, hold on. Let me let me just let me get through, Dan. Relax. Okay. So I I think um, you know Lambo could have a case at at the grievance level, but I just I don't think it's going to be litigated in the public realm. I think that's the same argument that the CBA controls, and it forces things to be uh, moved to private arbitration. So um, not to say that there might not be legitimacy in that particular case, but just the form isn't appropriate. That's that's well, my I, standpoint I, on it. What do you make of the timing of, of waiting so long? Because I think an injury, if it's a non-injury grievance, he's got to bring it within 50 days and that time frame has passed. And same thing with an injury grievance. It's 25 days for an injury grievance. So if this is arbitrable, how does he get by that time bar? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna well, without, without getting into too many details, there are times, right, when you file that lawsuit and you file it, right? Because if it's a personal injury lawsuit or hostile work environment, Right. Obviously, that statute of limitation is going to be longer than 50 days. It's just uh, obvious. Right. So sometimes you file that lawsuit in court. And what is the NFL going to do to respond? They're going to file a motion to, to dismiss and or move to arbitration, whatever they do. That costs money. That costs time. It costs money. And sometimes, Dan, as crazy as it is, maybe this is a sacrosanct that I'm saying this. Big companies will offer settlement numbers that are akin to what we call cost. So instead of actually drafting the motion, instead of actually sending a lawyer down to Vegas, like, uh, you know, uh, like that going on with the Gruden case, hiring local counsel, writing reports, doing the research, they'll just offer up a certain amount of money that they think is akin to the budget that will be spent defending that particular case. And they'll offer that to settle. But that number is never offered to settle unless someone files a lawsuit. So it's a little bit of yeah. litigation 101, my insurance defense background. Sometimes you file a lawsuit. Maybe you don't think you're going to win. It's not a meritless case. You think there's a lot of procedural hurdles to get yeah. over. But sometimes filing the lawsuit will trigger some type of settlement offer. And maybe yeah. maybe that's what Lambo's going for. I mean, well, I can tell a, you that that'll start the conversation, though. There's a larger issue here because he's a material fact witness in the dispute between Urban Meyer and the Jacksonville Jaguars. So if the, if, if the Jaguars pay him off with the settlement, well, then he becomes a biased witness. Maybe like he re- he's received this, you know, lump sum payment, sort of as as consideration for providing good testimony in the Jaguars dispute with Meyer. So, on the one hand, if they settle with them, then it's going to impugn his credibility as a fact witness for the Jaguars. 
But if they don't pay him, if they fight him scorched earth and try to get the case dismissed, then they turn him against the team and he's not going to help the team out by providing witness testimony in the, in the team's dispute with Urban Meyer. So there are some complicating factors regarding Lambeau's perspective use as a material fact witness. So if you pay him, he's biased. If you don't pay him, he becomes a hostile witness. So it's a very delicate situation right now. And I think, I think if you're going to you know, look for comparisons, I think Lawrence Tynes was able to successfully sue the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Pre, pre this CBA, though, different, different setting, I think. But the Tynes example, as I've read, led to the, led to the NFL battening down the hatches and trying to force everything through that mechanism. So if if Tynes had brought the suit post-2020 CBA, it definitely would have been arbitrable? Not necessarily, definitely, but I I have at least read enough literature that makes it seem like the Tynes issue, the fact that they got into court, I think it was, Dan, I think it was like a staff infection for Lawrence Tynes, former Giants kicker. The fact that that got into uh, and and ended up settling for a very large number, normally, Dan, uh, again, not to get too far behind the scenes, the NFL has gone through great lengths to try to make the only, the sole course of your remedy, workers' compensation for any type of injury that's relating to your course of employment. That's what yeah. they try to make happen. But the fact that yeah. Times was able to circumvent that and go directly to a court and get a huge amount of money, the NFL wanted to change that. So that's I, that was my understanding. One, one quick final point. I think a lot of this argument over arbitrability is going to turn on the standard player contract. And the language in the standard player contract for disputes doesn't speak to any and all disputes between player and team, but it's any and all disputes relating to the application of the CBA or application or enforcement of the contract and arguably, you know, some personal injury or hostile work environment issues may sort of transcend that boilerplate language in the standard player contract. But I think the next steps obviously are going to be a team motion to dismiss and motion to compel arbitration, citing the language in the CBA and the standard player contract. And that's where the battle will eventually uh, at least turn to in the next phase. Okay, so let's uh, on a related topic. We've we've mentioned his name a couple times today. So talking about arbitrability, the ability to have uh, a sports or an NFL related case heard in the courtroom versus the private courtroom that is uh, arbitration. Dan, John Gruden, he is a case. He has an active case that he filed over in Las Vegas. He's suing uh, the NFL and uh, you know suing a number of players relating to the leak uh, of his emails and the. You know, the reason why his his and only his emails were leaked. So, Dan, that's a case that I and people have heard my thoughts. I don't think that case is going to end up staying in the courtroom. I don't know if it's going to get, uh, you know, if we're going to actually have some type of decision at this upcoming hearing. But, Dan, next week, I don't know if you're going to go. You can you can advise our listeners on the fly of your thought process. We'll see if enough respond. You know, in a Las Vegas courtroom, we're going to have a decision on whether or not this case should remain in the courtroom or go to arbitration. Again, that is the John Gruden case. So, Dan, maybe you can talk through this on the fly. Are you going to Las Vegas? Is breaking news? Or you're not going to Vegas? I don't fence? know. It, it, it's up, it's up in the air. It really depends. Uh, it, it depends on a number. When, of when is the hearing? The 23rd or the 25th? The hearing is going to be on May 25th, which is Wednesday in the middle of next week. It's not going to be televised. You know, it's it's going to be in a state courtroom, so there's not the same kind of transparency around a, a Nevada hearing in state court as there is around federal court hearings. I mean, if you recall the recent status conference in the Brian Flores versus NFL litigation had a dial-in number. You could listen to the status conference over the phone. The same kind of transparency is not gonna be readily available in Nevada. So we're really gonna have to depend on on the ground reporting to find out what happened because it may be a month or two months before we get a ruling in the case. There's a motion 
to dismiss John Gruden's tortious interference claims, as well as a motion to compel arbitration, which is a vehicle to dismiss the lawsuit in favor of arbitration based upon standardized language in Gruden's contract, which incorporates the NFL constitution and bylaws, which makes all disputes between player and league and team subject to binding arbitration before Roger Goodell. But I disagree with you, or at least I don't share your view on the arbitrability of this case. First, there's the forum issue. And, you know, to draw a parallel to the St. Louis relocation lawsuit, that case was filed in a St. Louis state court system in, in, in the city of St. Louis trial court. Every critical ruling went in favor of the St. Louis plaintiffs and against the NFL. And unlike federal court, where you're more likely to be dealt a sort of a, an equal hand, state courts are notoriously favorable towards home plaintiffs. And the reason why the NFL can't remove this case, the federal court, is that they're a private association which is deemed to do business in every state for diversity purposes in every state where they where they do business. So if they have a, a team in the in Las Vegas, the NFL is deemed to be doing business in Las Vegas, Nevada, which means that there's no complete diversity. So the NFL is stuck in this unfriendly plaintiff's friendly state court system. And I would expect a, a version of home cooking to permeate the proceedings. Now let's go to the merits going beyond just the optics and the home cooking. The NFL is asking a court to send tort claims that have been filed against the NFL to arbitration before an NFL employee. I mean, that's an inherent conflict of interest. And, you know, in, in, when you have player discipline cases, where the league is just sort of the presiding officer and they're hearing a, a disciplinary appeal. The arbitration clauses are enforced, but where the NFL itself is a defendant, where Roger Goodell himself could be and will be a material fact witness because he's accused to be one of the you know, possible sources of the leak of this, you know, of these emails, that it would be illogical. And contrary, I think, to some of the case law around, you know, evident partiality and bias to allow a league employee to adjudicate tort claims filed against the league. And there's some precedent on that. And, and one of the more recent cases is the uh, Staten Island Yankees lawsuit against the New York Yankees and Major League Baseball over the, I guess, the termination of the affiliation between you know the minor league team and, and and major league baseball and there was an arbitration provision that uh provided that mlb commissioner rob manfred would adjudicate the tort claims against major league baseball and the lower court judge and this was upheld on appeal the judge said you can't have that there's this appearance of bias this appearance of impropriety from having the major league baseball commissioner be the arbitrator on tort claims that are filed against his employer. And I think the same reasoning is going to apply here. And, and uh, that leads me to the conclusion that this case ultimately will go forward in the Nevada court system and not be removed to arbitration. And if it survives a motion to dismiss and a motion to compel arbitration, we get one step closer to depositions and discovery, and maybe one step closer to potentially learning of Dan Snyder's involvement around the leaks of this uh, information. Hey, Dan, you, you're kind of reading my mind here. You're helping me with these transitions a lot in our, in our world of podcast fun. Dan, you talk about leaks. You talk about leaks of emails. We joked at the top, the Deshaun Watson case 
the comings and going in that case are the worst kept secrets in sports law. We knew that these depositions were going to be leaked. And Dan, the latest on Watson, Watson met with, I think, two stories, which I found interesting that happened simultaneously. So Watson reportedly took a bunch of his teammates to the Bahamas on a, on a plane. So they're having some you know, team bonding festivities, which is great. New quarterback of the team, as to be expected. And then there's a separate report, Dan, that came out. I'm not sure how the timing worked out. I'm not sure if either of these reports are true timing-wise, but a report that the uh, NFL convened with Watson to try to figure out if he violated the NFL's personal conduct policy. So two stories happening simultaneously. So Dan, you have, oh, he's meeting with his teammates. That's interesting. The NFL is about to suspend him. That's interesting. And then we have a leak in the Deshaun Watson case. So Deshaun Watson um, was asked to come back for further depositions. If you recall one of our previous episodes, he appeared at a deposition and essentially pled the fifth to every question because he could not answer anything at that point. He, um, you know, we were still not sure whether or not he was going to be indicted by grand juries. So they brought him back to a deposition because they said, okay, you weren't indicted, time to uh, appear for a deposition and testify. So one piece of testimony is coming out uh, leaked, I think by indications are by Tony Busby's side who uh, represents the 22 uh, civil accusers. We shouldn't say her name, but the first civil plaintiff who came forward with her name, you can look it up online, it's not our place to say it, uh, essentially uh, came forward with a text message that Deshaun Watson, after their incident was over, sent her basically an apology text message. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm sorry I, I made you feel uncomfortable. Let me know if we could have a work together again. And during the deposition testimony, that portion was leaked where Watson essentially confirmed that this individual, one of these plaintiffs accusing Watson of misconduct, acknowledged that she was crying after the fact. And uh, I'll try to keep this as PG as possible. But I think the incident that was, uh, you know, is being alleged in the complaint is that Watson, we'll say, pressed up against her in a way that uh, made her feel very uncomfortable. So uh, use your imagination as to what I'm talking about. So that was leaked, Dan, by uh, your friend, Mike, or the story was by your friend, Mike Florio. But I think that's, uh, again, convenient timing as Watson is being, uh, you know, evaluated for potential suspension, how how long that suspension is going to be. So, you know, call it dirty pool, call it what you want. I don't think that's uh, necessarily fair what's going on. Well, Tony Busby gives like a horrible name to the legal profession. He's somebody who, you know, if you're representing a victim of sexual violence, you're doing everything to preserve her anonymity, to protect her. And he's instead taking deposition excerpts that involve his client and place his client in a somewhat embarrassing, vulnerable position. And he's running and sharing it with the media. And it's not just allegedly leaked by Tony Busby's side. It was leaked by Tony Busby himself and given by Busby to Mike Florio and potentially others. He's trying to leverage this situation into, a, into an adv- advantageous settlement as quickly as possible because he loses all leverage once the NFL levies its discipline, because if the NFL comes out tomorrow and suspends Deshaun Watson six games, you know, the train has left the station, so to speak, and and Busby will no longer enjoy any leverage to force a settlement because the NFL will have already disciplined him. And there's probably no realistic prospect of having criminal proceedings reinstituted. So once the NFL acts, it's all over for Tony Busby. So he is obviously trying to place Watson in, in, a, in, a, in a vulnerable position right now to force a settlement so that maybe it could head off any potential discipline. But I don't believe the NFL will react to the whims or twists and turns of this litigation as framed by Tony Busby. The league is going to do what the league is going to do. 
But I think once Watson is suspended, uh, Busby loses all leverage. And this is purely a leverage play at this point, because why would you be releasing transcripts involving alleged sexual violence when you're representing one of the victims? It runs counter to how anybody should responsibly protect you know, their clients from any adverse public publicity. I mean, she's already named and we're learning about these things that were being done to her. And he's and he's running to the media to share these transcripts simply to extract uh, as high of a monetary settlement as possible within this limited time window that remains before the NFL acts. If I was the league, I would just not let Tony Busby take control over these proceedings like this. Whatever ruling is made and whatever decision the league makes, it shouldn't be drawn out. It's already been a year and a half that they've had this matter under investigation. If you're going to do something, if you're going to act, do it now, get it all over with so that there's closure. We know when Watson's coming back and we remove Tony Busby from the news cycle. So I'll I'll disagree with you on on one part, Dan, Um, and obviously we can agree to disagree on the arbitrability issue. We'll, we'll see where that lies. But for this one, you know, we'll obviously never know Tony Busby's true motivation here. But I- Isn't I it love, evident? Isn't it evident? No, no, not necessarily, because I don't think these cases are settling, right? And I think his clients are probably saying, I want Deshaun Watson, right, a pint of blood, right? So if the guy doesn't get suspended, I think, I mean, I don't, I don't know if the, I don't think the case is about money. I think it's about Watson for- for some, at least some of these accusers, right? Because I think the reports, which I've talked about the show, I think there were four holdouts. It was reported, not by us, but we saw the reporting. Four holdouts didn't want to settle the case at last year's trade deadline. And I think Watson's side said, oh, essentially, this is my reading of the situation. If four holding out, you know, that means it's a seemingly an all or nothing type deal. Settle all the cases or we're settling none of them. So that tells me, Dan, my reading of it is that there are some of these accusers that don't care about the money aspect. They want Watson to feel it. They want Watson to be held accountable. So at a time where Watson is up for suspension, if your motivation is for Watson to be held accountable, I don't know, that's a good time to leak some information to help him get suspended. So that's that's, that's one potential motivation here. What does does accountable mean in the civil justice and the civil litigation system? It 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 means more money, more money, more money. That's all it means. Watch watch this. Some uh, listen. I'm not. I know where I'm coming from. There will never be a trial in any of the 22 cases. You're you're going you're going beyond the call of the question. Why did Tony Busby do what he did? I don't, we don't have to be talking about the civil case. Sometimes Tony Busby, if you're on the Sean Watts camp, Watson's camp, he does things to be a pest. He does things like, hey, Watson, you know, let's try to avoid any type of suspension. Busby's like, no, I have to, I'm here to, you know, protect my clients. I want to help this out. I don't know if it helps the civil case and it probably doesn't help the civil case to leak deposition testimony. And if anything, Dan, it doesn't advance the civil case at all. It probably just pisses off Deshaun Watson's attorneys and it helps make settlement that much harder. I don't think it helps the civil case, but I all think right. if you were, if you're Watson's, if you were Busby's, one of Busby's clients, I think you're happy that he's leaking stuff at a time where Watson may or may not get suspended. So sometimes that's the motivation to make your clients happy. What a shocking concept. I, I think that's the motivation here. I don't think man, it helps man. the case. He, I don't think it helps the he, case at all. He's a mercenary. Okay. He's trying to get more money for his clients. And by leaking this te- this deposition testimony at a time when the NFL is considering discipline for Deshaun Watson, he's placing Watson in a situation where now he has to fear that his suspension might be even, even worse the more these you know leaks come out. And uh, maybe that's a signal that he's got to up his settlement offer. I think it's all about the positioning of the settlement. It's all about the money. You know, uh, Tony Busby is not a civil justice attorney. He's not somebody who's looking to stand on principle to advocate for women's rights. 
He's a, he's a soldier of fortune, and he's simply trying to get as much money possible for all 22 of his clients, and consequently, as much money possible for himself. And he's taking advantage, probably he's doing, a, he's, he's doing the best job that he knows how to do. He's using the media to put pressure and to create pressure around Deshaun Watson at a time when he may face a severe suspension to maybe to increase his settlement offer and make it all go away. Dan, I, I, you know, we can uh, agree to disagree on the motivation, but I think we seem to both agree it doesn't necessarily help move the civil case along. We will remind everyone that uh, due to an agreement, a scheduling agreement between both sides, there will be no trial held in this case, even if cases do settle, we should talk about it, but there will be no trial held until after this year's Super Bowl. So no resolution likely on the merits coming for about a year. So buckle up, guys. The story is not going away anytime soon. Okay, Dan, moving away from the gridiron, we covered big episode today. We covered the St. Louis Rams. We covered Jerry Judy and the Broncos, Josh Lambeau and the Jaguars, the Raiders and John Gruden, Watson and the Cleveland Browns. Now move over to baseball. Matt, Harvey, he's a pitcher for the Baltimore Orioles. Friend of mine, he's uh, over uh, at the Fan Baltimore. Jerry Coleman, I go, I have a regular spot with him on, on Wednesdays. He goes to me, Dan, why are the Orioles messing around with Matt Harvey? Isn't he going to get suspended? And I said, Jerry, I guarantee you the guy will be suspended. I don't know how long, but I guarantee you he was suspended. So yesterday we had an update. Orioles pitcher Matt Harvey has been suspended for 60 games for distributing, quote, a drug of abuse, close quote, under Major League Baseball's drug program. So I don't know, when did he, when did he talk about distributing a uh, drug of abuse? During the Eric K criminal trial, Matt Harvey had, uh, he was protected by immunity. He was given a, given a deal in exchange for his testimony. But as we said at the time, I think, uh, you know, Matt Timpanic came on with us. Just because you are immune from criminal prosecution doesn't mean that you are immune from baseball suspension. I think, Dan, it's not surprising that Harvey gets suspended. It, certainly we saw that coming. I think to me, a little surprising that it's only 60 days when the guy admits to doing it on, on the record under oath. And Dan, who else was a little surprised by that? Trevor Bauer, a guy that we've talked about early and often on, on uh, our show. Matt, you know, Obviously, Trevor Bauer just suspended for two years by Major League Baseball. No uh, criminal charges, not been cr- convicted in the court, was uh, actually exonerated with his uh, temporary restraining order case. Matt Harvey's tweet is as follows from yesterday. I picked up uh, some good traction. Quote, Matt Harvey admitted under oath in federal court to distributing drugs, a felony in California, among other illegal activities like taking drugs himself in a case where a teammate died, close quote, 60 games. So Dan, I'll I'll give it over to you. I'm not sure how much we we can really add to this, but uh, what do you think about the 60 game aspect of Harvey's suspension and and maybe how, how Bauer feels about it here? Well, as an appellate lawyer, I could tell you that this will not be an appeal. You have an admission under oath made in open court during a trial so there's clearly liability and culpability slash guilt in the MLB arena and 60 games is, I, would, I wouldn't say that that's de minimis, but I think that's a relatively modest suspension given, uh, given what he could have faced. And, you know, I think he's just going to take his, his suspension, not appeal it. I mean, I, I think getting back into the good graces of baseball, he's not the player he once was. And while he had an improved year last year, I think it's still open to question whether he's going to get anything more than an open tryout rather than a guaranteed contract. So I think the, the, the right play here for him is to, is to take, the, take the 60 games, not appeal it, stay in shape and, you know, try out for a team and maybe, you know, continue your career in the major leagues. Because at one time he was a great pitcher and, there's some, and the one thing that is always in short supply in baseball is, is decent or even mediocre 
pitching and he was much more than a mediocre pitcher at one point. So he's going to continue to get multiple opportunities. And from Trevor Bauer's perspective, I can't quite equate the two situations. I mean, they're not equivalent. I get his point. And I think it speaks more to the excessiveness of his penalty rather than the lightness of Matt Harvey's penalty. And, and, and to a point, I think Bauer's right. And when you look at the comparators for domestic violence and any kind of past disciplinary decisions under the new CBA, I think, you know, the, the two years is unprecedented considering that you've had uh, the adjudication uh, that occurred in the California court system, uh, a no criminal prosecution that, that's going forward that I think in light of those facts, even though the pictures tell a very gruesome story, I think two years is grossly excessive and he'll probably win an arbitration, reducing it down to, you know, one year or hundred and some odd games or 80 games. He's going to win that arbitration. But the larger question is, will he be able to resume his baseball career? Will any team be willing to tackle or take on the optics issue, given the acts he's been accused of, and those pictures really are going to resonate with, with, with people. And he's going to have a hard time, I think, initially. I mean, pitching, he's a great pitcher. And I'm not sure that there's a team out there that's going to be willing to take that chance. I'll push back on you in a couple of things. So, so Matt Harvey, number one, right? He was signed by the Baltimore Orioles on April 8th, 2022, to a minor league deal. This was post-Eric K testimony. So I remember, you know, I went on a couple of shows. We talked about it in the podcast. We said, what team is going to sign him after he's talking about giving drugs to another player, right? He's admitting to illegal use. And Dan, we're, I mean, I'm in New York. I listen to, you know, the sports radio talk shows here talking about a number of stories where Matt Harvey was, we'll just say, uh, acting in in a way that was conduct detrimental to his team. There's the name of the podcast thing. But, you know, that I'm like, I don't know what team would ever take a chance on Matt Harvey again. And mind you, Dan, Matt Harvey is not like, you know, two years ago, Trevor Bauer won the Cy Young Award, right? I'm going to read, and I read this last time we Matt Harvey came up. I don't know, 2017, Danny had 19 appearances in a 6.7 ERA. The next year, 32 appearances, 4.94 ERA. The next year, 12 appearances, 7 ERA. The next year, 7 appearances, 11.57 ERA. And last year, 2021, 28 appearances, 6 wins, 14 losses, and a 6.27 ERA. Matt Harvey is a horrendous pitcher. That is fact. He is terrible. He is way, way, way below average. Some team, the Baltimore Orioles, decided to take a shot at him after his testimony came out about his involvement in the the drug community of Major League Baseball. So, again, stranger things have happened. Stranger things, a.k.a. Matt Harvey getting a chance again in Major League Baseball when he has been terrible. He's been awful. Let me push back on the terrible. 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 His numbers numbers have have not been anywhere near acceptable on a a major league quality, major league starting Terrible. But But he still has... you're talking about, we're comparing two different things. You're talking about the viability of a suspension over whether he deserves and and merits another chance based on how he performs as a pitcher. That's up to the teams to decide. All right. Signing him to a minor league contract is no risk for the Baltimore Orioles. And there's absolutely no proof and no finding that uh, Matt Harvey's distribution of drugs within the Angels Clubhouse, you know, led or caused the death of of Tyler Skaggs. So the inference that Trevor Bauer is trying to draw here is one that isn't supported, you know, by the evidence. And there have never been any findings as to that, you know, connection. Whereas by contrast, you know, Trevor Bauer's alleged incident involved, you know, 
gruesome acts of violence and we could debate whether there was consent involved, but it portrays or at least paints a different public profile than the evidence against Matt Harvey. It's not on the same plane. And to compare the two situations, you know, punishment to punishment, it involves completely different uh, alleged offenses. And there's never been a finding that Harvey's actions caused the death of any player. I don't want to open the door to a hundred different, uh, you know, rebut rebuttal here, but I think if you don't, if you just look at the back of the baseball card stats, uh, Matt Harvey is not a major league caliber player. If you just look at his statistics and his performance, maybe he offers something in the clubhouse. Trevor Bauer literally won the Cy Young Award as the best pitcher in baseball two years ago. So one oh. player, certainly from a performance standpoint, deserves to be in the league. Now, if you, my only point here is that it surprises me that, you know, we'll say in, a, in a, the box that's checked, do both have off-field uh, controversies? Yes, we'll check that box. Does Matt Harvey deserve to be on a field based off how he's performed? I don't think so. So I think the combination of those two, yeah. I'm surprised with another team. And for me, Bauer, yes, he has an off the field issue, but the guy won the Cy Young Award. So if a guy like Matt Harvey can get a minor league contract offered to him, getting being paid some amount of money when he doesn't seem to have anything to offer on a baseball field other than getting blown the F up every time he touches a baseball, it would, it's not mm -hmm. going to shock me if, if some team takes a chance in Trevor Bauer. You know, when it, when it comes to Matt Harvey, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and it's not a, a, a great investment or it's not a, a major decision to offer a minor league contract to a player who was once a viable major league pitcher. He may never recapture a fraction of, of what he once was, but he's only 33 years old. I believe that Matt Harvey will be starting for some staff in the major leagues at some point. He may not be very good, but considering that he's been on major league rosters for past years, even long after he was dominant for the New York Mets, I think speaks well or speaks to the paucity of quality major league pitching at the bottom of rotations throughout Major League Baseball. So uh, if he has it in him, he'll get the chance. If he doesn't, then he won't get the chance, but he deserves the chance. I guess we'll agree to disagree on uh, Matt, Matt Harvey's viability in the, in the major leagues, but neither here nor there. Uh, I guess we'll see on both fronts whether Matt Harvey uh, ends up again pitching at the major league level, whether Bauer uh, ends up pitching for another team, but we shall see. I guess uh, that'll, that'll put an end to our topics. Dan, we, we should give a big shout out. We gave a big shout out to the Canuck. Again, Themis Bar Review, uh, those guys, we announced we were having a live event and all of a sudden they stepped up and they said, you know, we want to support your students, listeners of Sports Law, and we will actually, and uh, this is, I don't know, people thought I was joking, um, they actually paid the bill for our bar night. So if you needed any more incentive to come party with Conduct Detrimental, drinks on the house was certainly a big one. So we appreciate everybody that came out. Big shout out to Themis Bar and, and good luck to all of our listeners who are uh, taking the bar in the coming months. So uh, I believe that's going to be at the end of July. So you got to people starting bar prep this week. And if you are getting ready for bar prep in the next year, Themis Bar Review, top bar prep company in the galaxy. Okay, Dan, let's move over to hockey as we finish this episode out. You know, our other sponsor of the podcast is Underdog Fantasy. Those guys have best ball tournaments. They have DFS tournaments. You could draft your, your best hockey lineup. Our code over there, if you want a special match bonus, is CONDUCT. Uh, that is Underdog Fantasy. And Dan, anything else to add before we put this episode in the books? No, it's just I'm looking forward to the you know, hearing next week in the Gruden NFL case. And uh, that, I think, is going to set the stage a little bit for what could happen in the Flores litigation. So for those who are wondering whether Flores is going to get his day in court, I would focus on the motion to compel arbitration in Gruden versus NFL, because I think that could uh, be a preview of the battle that's going to take place later this summer in the Flores litigation.
I am looking forward to it as well. The Trevor Bauer appeal, I think, is set to be heard also next week. So we'll see if it goes off as planned. But another big uh, sports all week, another big sports all episode. Um, okay, so we can put this one officially in the books for Dan and myself, the Conic Detrimental family. We will see you next time. Another episode of Conic Detrimental. Detrimental.